Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Uh, All right. Good morning. Uh, kiddos, I think we just have Elevate this morning. So, uh, uh, Scott, are you in there? Awesome. So if you want to follow the guy that just read, Scott, he's going into Elevate. If you are in first or second grade, you can follow him. If you're not in first and second grade, it'd be weird if you followed him. So don't do that. Um, and we are going to continue on in Sermon on the Mount this morning. And uh, I'm just going to tell you right now, this morning might feel more like a classroom lecture than a sermon. And, uh, and if you want to close, yeah, close those doors so we don't interrupt the kids. Um, this morning might feel a little bit more like a, uh, like a lecture, and I don't want it to, um, but it doesn't matter at this point. Uh, I'm, I'm going to do it. Uh, if you are a philosophy major or the son of a philosophy major and you have critique this morning, I would love for you to write that down uh, and throw it away. Um, if you have something that I am immensely off on, you can email me later and say that you probably could have explained this better. Uh, that's fine. All right? Uh, but we are going to wax a little philosophy this morning. We're going to talk about the ethics of Jesus. And so I want to start uh, because this passage is loaded. It is loaded. Next week, we're going to look more at the theological implications of it. This week, we're going to look at just the broad like the whole picture of what's going on. So I want to ask a question to start. Some of you will not care about this question, and that's fine. That's okay. But those who do care about this question, you're going to look at each other across the room. You're going to give the nod. You're going to text and make lunch plans and go and debate and discuss this for at least the rest of the day. I promise. I think. It's not my thing. But if it is your thing, I think it it will... It'll be there. All right, you ready? You ready? Everybody totally built on, you ready for this? Batman. The the one acceptable non-Marvel character, right? Right, he's not Marvel. Nope, right. He's what? DC, right? He's the only DC character that we care about, right? Superman, we don't, all right, anyway. All right, Batman. Hero? Or villain? Mmm. Mmm. So quick to answer. Is he justice or is he anti-justice? He fights bad guys, but he also operates outside of the law. He does not give due process. He is a vigilante. Is he good or is he bad? Is he the bad guy that bad guys are afraid of? There's a lot to discuss. I was a little disappointed how quickly some of you are, ah, good guy. Mm. Unless you've just had this discussion and come to this resolve. We're gonna, I, I got to move forward. I love, I, I want to engage, but my, my wife, God bless her, because she listens to my sermons every Sunday. Listen, she's like, that was really good. You need to cut a lot of it out. Um, <laughs> so you got to stay with me this morning, okay? 15 years ago, it's hard to believe it's been 15 years, Dark Knight came out, right? And, and really was... It was kind of transformational for the character of Batman. And it just really took Batman 
to, uh, it was a dark movie. And, and The Dark Knight presented ethical dilemma after ethical dilemma. Uh, Heath Ledger's Joker, probably the best bad guy, the, the, the worst villain. I mean, you, you could argue a good case for this being probably the worst villain in, in any movie. Um, the Joker wreaked havoc on Gotham. And it wasn't just violent. He, w- he was violent for sure. But he also was, he would pit people against each other to do violence. He, he was, I think, the personification of evil. He did a brilliant job portraying uh, evil. And so, near the end of the movie, before the ethical dilemma with Harvey Dent, and here's the deal. If you're like, what is he talking about? It, it won't matter here in just a minute. Okay, I promise. Before the ethical dilemma with Harvey Dent, right? You either, you either die a hero or you live long enough to become the villain. Um, is the moral dilemma that Batman has when he has an opportunity to kill the Joker, to let him fall, and, and he doesn't. Was that decision by Batman good or bad? Was it, what, these are rhetorical, <laughs> but it's totally fine. I'm encourage, I want to encourage lunch discussion, all right? It's, it's totally fine. Was, was that right or wrong? Was it moral or immoral for him to spare the Joker? And how do you come to that conclusion? How do you justify your response? Our world is filled with difficult, nuanced, gray hard decisions, difficult stances, moral dilemmas. And as followers of Jesus, this is a, this is, this drives me crazy. Uh, I think we really need to think better about these decisions, these stances, the ways that we hold these things. I think We've kind of gotten lazy in a whole, this is good, this is bad, and this, that's how we do things. Um, and, and I think we need to think better than that. Our world is very, very, very complex. But not only is our world complex, the story of Scripture and the hope of the gospel is we have a glorious, robust, full gospel that deals with every possible nook and cranny of the universe that could happen. And so to think better about the complexities of our world is actually not to diminish the hope of the gospel, but to to lift it up even more. Okay? All right. There are four broad categories of ethical dilemmas that we see in the world around us. Uh, Truth versus loyalty. Short-term versus long-term. Individual versus community, and justice versus mercy. Chances are good we have all struggled with that at some point in time, with one of those things. We want justice for everybody except the person that cuts us off, 
right? When we're supposed to zipper down in, in, in construction traffic, the guy that, that goes, that is flying up the side, we want justice for him, unless that's us. Then we want mercy, right? We all struggle with these ethical dilemmas. And it's great because Jesus validates every one of your ethical dilemmas and is always on your side and always condemns everybody else that disagrees with you. And he does the same for those who disagree with you for you, right? This, I'm being humorous. We bring Jesus into all these. Well, obviously, Jesus is this. Well, no, Jesus is this. And we bring him into all of our discussions. And he's always on our side. So, let me give you just a little preview here. Next week's Palm Sunday. We're going to look at the theological uh, issues of this. We're going to take a couple weeks uh, break uh, for Eastertide. And then we're going to get back to how this applies to a bunch of passages where Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I tell you. Um, this week, we're going to look at this passage that Jesus hasn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. We're going to look at it from, from an ethical standpoint. It's a, it's, it can be a bit confusing, right? Um, and what does it look like to see our world from the moral compass or the ethical position of a people following Jesus? And I want to give you some of the other major ethical theories because I think those are, those are helpful because I think sometimes we default into those. Uh, we may practice them without actually realizing we're practice them, practicing them. So I want to give some definition to that and then we're going to go into the ethics of Jesus. Um, all right, everybody good so far? Still with me? All right, I'm going to give three major ethical positions, uh, and I've, I've actually even got slides for these. That's how, that's how much I prepared. Uh, the reason I want to give these, again, <clears throat> is because it's helpful to understand, um, in general, what we as a culture uh, generally operate on, and then I'll give a breakdown of the, Jesus, of, uh, the ethics of Jesus and what that looks like. The way I want to explain these, very much um, an oversimplification of these views is in this ethical dilemma in regards to Batman and Joker, okay? So, either major day or you're rolling your eyes tremendously right now. Here are the three philosophies that we're going to deal with. And each one of these has lots of nuances and each one of these has uh, just kind of variances in this. Uh, but we're going to look at virtue ethics, deontological ethics, and utilitarian ethics. So first is virtue ethics. Why doesn't the Batman kill the Joker? Well, virtue ethics, or virtue theory, would say because Batman doesn't kill anybody. Um, it's not necessarily about the decision that Batman does or doesn't make, as much as it is about the person that Batman wants to become. The goal of virtue ethics is to practice things to become a virtuous person. And so you implement practices uh, believing that you will, you implement virtuous practices uh, to become a virtuous person. And killing is not part of, the, of what Batman wants to become. Um, <clears throat> Aristotle uh, is the one that gave definition to this, uh, this moral theory. And the way that he would describe it that we have up here is that virtue, these are revealed in nature, is what Aristotle would argue, that virtue is doing the right thing 
at the right time for the right reason, and you could even add in the right amount for the right people. Now, again, there's a lot of nuances here. Um, courage is a virtue, right? If somebody is getting mugged, uh, at what point is it virtuous to interfere with that mugging versus calling for help? At what point are you a coward? Or at what point are you stupid? If you rush in and you also get hurt, that's not virtuous, that's dumb. And so Aristotle had a whole way of seeing how this plays itself out. Uh, in our current day, it is virtuous to be vulnerable. Right? We, we have developed, a, which is unique, we have developed a virtue of vulnerability. That said, vulnerability carries with it some sticky subjective things. Uh, and, and there might be some questionable motives there. To be vulnerable where we are truly opening ourselves up or to be vulnerable that's more of a gamble for potential gain. I reveal this to you because I know you're not going to do anything about it. Right? That's not really being vulnerable. That's manipulative. So there's some questionable stuff in, in uh, virtuous, uh, in, ver in the theory of virtue. Uh, Aristotle would argue for the most part that virtue is revealed in nature and we should strive to practice and become virtuous people. This is not necessarily unchristian to become virtuous people, um, but uh, it falls a bit short. So that's the first, that's the first uh, ethical theory. Okay, the next one is deontological. This is introduced by Immanuel Kant. This is probably what most, this is probably what Batman is in his, in his thoughts. Um, deontological focuses on universal moral principles. And again, there's lots of nuances involved. It should be upheld regardless of the consequences. So it doesn't matter what the consequences would be you should uphold these. So, murder is wrong. In all circumstances, in all cases, murder is wrong. So Batman should never kill the Joker. He will have him arrested. He will have him sent to Arkham, where he will escape over and over and over again. And he will do damage over and over and over again. But the blood will never be on Batman's hands because murder is always wrong. Does that make sense? So it's like a code that you live by. Um, in the same way, if you go to World War II, right? This is always, the, this, is, this is part of the ethical dilemma. If you go to World War II and you are hiding Jews in your home and there are Nazis that come to your door and they're looking and they say, are you hiding Jews in your home? If you are a deontologist, you would have to, you could not lie because lying is what class? Lying is wrong. So, you either don't say anything, or you have to tell the truth. If this is the ethical uh, uh, system that you would ascribe to. Kant also did not believe that any, of, any kind of religion was necessary. He thought that these universal laws were, and again, lots of nuances and discussion, other, but these were, these were made known in nature. So, a Christian, a Jew, a Muslim, an atheist, a Buddhist, doesn't matter, murder is always wrong. And this is not guided by consequences. This is guided by moral principles. All right, everybody still with me? Last primary ethical view. Uh, probably the one that's most common in our day. 
uh, <clears throat> which is utilitarianism. Also seems like the one that could be the most easily abused. This is a view that the ultimate goal of mankind is happiness or fulfillment or hu uh, human flourishing. We can give different names there. That that is the chief end of man and that moral decisions are moral based on what makes the most happiness or good for the most people. All right, now again, there's rules underneath this because this could be and has been radically abused. Because you could say, well, the best good for us is for all of those people to be eliminated. Um, and so they put, there's, there's lots of sub-rules in there. You could justify a lot of evil under just a, a carte blanche view of that. Um, <clears throat> in this case, however, between the Batman and Joker, Joker is considered a, a, a continued uh, nuisance to the world around him. He has demonstrated that he will never stop doing what he does. And so Batman would be completely justified in ending him. In fact, in utilitarian ethics, Batman might even be considered immoral for not killing the Joker. Does that make sense? Do you care? Even though he had like 15 chances to do it. Okay. I wanted to give you these things, and we'll leave these up there for a few minutes, to give you kind of the, the general basic overview of what are the major ethical views in the world around us. The person we are becoming, are we becoming a person of character? Uh, a universal code that you do no matter what? No matter what the consequences are? Or the consequences determine whether what you do is right or wrong? These are our major... Uh, these flow into why we make the decisions we make. These flow into why people convince us to make the decisions we make. This is why things can be so manipulative. Well, don't you want to do what is good for everyone? These are present uh, in all of those. And so this is why we make decisions, what factors go into that. Uh, and... And so this can be helpful to think about the decisions we make, the stances that we, that we are hard on and why we take them. Uh, they can also be agonizing if you think too much about this, which most of us should probably think a little bit more about them, um, but they can be agonizing if we think too much. This can be the hamster wheel of futility, right? Lots and lots and lots of running to move nowhere. And if you're a philosophy major or were a philosophy major, then you're like, amen. Right? Lots of thinking to not really go, many, to not really go very far. Uh, the beautiful example of this, my one of my favorite shows, The Good Place, Chidi Adegane, right? If you remember Chidi, Chidi was a philosophy professor. The Good Place, the synopsis is they're all in eternity. And so they all share their death stories. And Chidi died because he was standing in front of a building when a window unit Air conditioning, air conditioning unit fell on him because he was standing in front of the building for 30 minutes weighing the ethical decisions of which bar to go to to hang out with his friend that night. It's kind of funny. It's, I mean, when I explain it, in the show, it's kind of funny. Okay. They can be exhausting. 
But what about for followers of Jesus? How do these play into our lives? Jesus has come to fulfill the law, but not to abolish the law. So what does that mean? Do, do we live by the law or do we not live by the law? Should we follow these rules or do we not follow these rules? What, what, what does it mean that he did that? And if we say, if we teach somebody to follow, to not follow one of these laws, we'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But then if our righteousness is not better than the Pharisees, we're not even going to be in the kingdom of heaven. So what, what does it mean? How do we determine what's right and wrong? What parts of life uh, does the law not address? What about our motives? What if we do the right thing for the wrong reason? Or the wrong thing for the right reason? What does it mean to actually love your neighbor? And again, we love to bring Jesus to, our, to advocate for our side and against their side, and they love to do the same thing. So Jesus both advocates and condemns all of us. That's tongue-in-cheek. You can, you can laugh at that part. Um, and, and sometimes we, we make these statements. Um, my favorite one as a preacher is, well, we just need to preach the word. We don't need to add commentary to it. That is a commentary that you're adding to the word. Truth is truth. It's either truth or a lie. It's either black or white. Do you, do you feel the weight of that? And I think we probably should feel the weight of that. Because there's some things that are just not that simple. And I think we should be in the arena, figuring things out, encouraging one another as fellow followers of Jesus, keeping watch, tending to one another, reading scripture, all of this. And I'm not saying necessarily that we have to write a blog on every position in, in a sensitive topic and, and vocalize that to the world. But I think as we wrestle this out um, before all of these, these ways that we're going to look at, um, how, the, the question we have to ask, how do we live and function and trust and grow closer to Jesus, love him more, trust him more? How do we become the people of Jesus and simultaneously think better about how we operate in the world around us? Um, one of the commentaries I've been reading, uh, Scott McKnight, uh, and he gives what I think is an amazing overview of all that goes into the ethics of Jesus and what that means. And he suggests, and, and I, I agree, <laughs> uh, that may not matter, but I agree with him, the ethics of Jesus flow from three directions. They, they flow from above, from beyond, and from below. And then all of those culminate together. The one ring that binds them all uh, is Jesus himself, that empowers a community of Jesus' followers by the Holy Spirit to live that out. And I'll flesh that out a little bit more when we get there. So let's start with the, the ethics of Jesus that flow from above. All right? Is everybody with me on this? Does this make sense? Are we still, you still tracking people that are awake? Okay. That, because this has been super helpful um, for me, and I don't want to talk too much that I that I make it less helpful. <clears throat> um, all right, the Torah, the law. We believe that God reveals what it means to be virtuous. All right? Aristotle would say you don't need a religion to be virtuous. Nature reveals that. We would say no, nature may reflect that. God revealed it. The law comes from God. Um, 
when Aristotle talks about nature revealing things, he would say that uh, Thales of Miletus was the first person, the, first, the father of Greek philosophy, and he looked around and said, we don't need gods to explain the world around us. Nature reveals things. We can just look at nature to determine who are the wise, who should make the decisions, all that kind of stuff. Thales of Miletus, one of his famous sayings is, I am grateful to fortune for three things, that I was born a human, not a beast, a man, not a woman, and a Greek, not a barbarian. I dare you to go tweet that. This is the original humanism of what nature revealed, is what Thales would, would look at. Um, we don't believe necessarily that nature reveals what it means to be virtuous. We believe that God has spoken. We believe in a God that has made himself known. He has given us the law. That's unique to any other God in history. God has made himself known, and he has given us the commands of what is good and what is right and what is holy. And we are, we are given these not to just say, God said it, I, I believe it, that settles it, but we are given these to study and know the law reveals the character of God. Other gods in the ancient world, you kind of had to guess what, they, what pleased them, what made them happy, what sacrifices can we give them to get rain, all this kind of stuff. What we believe is the God of Scripture made himself known to all people and gave us what he wants and desires from us. He revealed his character. And when Jesus comes, he takes the law of God, the commandments, and he doesn't abolish them. He fulfills them. He embodies them. He is the Torah. He is the word of God. Jesus doesn't ever say, thus says the Lord. Jesus is God. So he is speaking this law. Um. And when we, when we see this in the context of the story of Scripture that we talk about every week, uh, creation, rebellion, redemption, restoration, we see even more of how to understand the law, how to understand God's revelation from above. Um, none of the other philosophies would necessarily claim that they were divinely inspired. We believe the law, the commands of God, we can, we can categorize that in what does it mean to be virtuous. We believe that that is made known by God. Um, we believe that the commands of God are good. To pursue these is good. Uh, we see how that can be abused or misunderstood, that if we just follow the rules, that's good. So understanding God's revelation from above is good, but it's incomplete. All right? We're good on that point. All right, revelation from above. Next is revelation from beyond. Jesus' ethics were informed by revelation from beyond. Um, <clears throat> this is referring to the future. The prophets, throughout the Hebrew scriptures, the prophets would constantly both warn and encourage God's people with what will happen in the future. God's judgment will come. Now, we see judgment as bad, the ancient world, they saw judgment as good because they saw judgment as God defeating their enemies. Um, so 
Judgment was actually safety that God's future, his promises were here. When Jesus talks about the future that would come to bear on how we look at ethics, he talks about the kingdom. So we just went through all of these promises of God uh, in, in the Beatitudes. Uh, and he tells us not only who God's hand is upon, who he has blessed, but he also gives some future promises for the poor in spirit, for the humble in heart, for those persecuted for the sake of Jesus. This future kingdom is yours. Today does not have everything. God's promises are everything. And so the ethics of Jesus are formed by the certainty of the future. And how do we know we can trust that? Because of the resurrection. We're going to fully celebrate that in, in a couple weeks. But the resurrection, like, sealed the deal. He came back from the dead. So we go, okay, so we can trust what he said. So we're not looking at the future as like, gee, I hope so, but as a yes, one day. All right. So on practical levels, what does that mean? Sometimes followers of Jesus, we can be so fixated on the future, you know, God just get us the heck out of here, right? One day I'll fly away, uh, that we really don't care about the present. But that's not what the nature of prophecy was for. The nature of prophecy in the future was to give us confidence of what will be one day so that we can operate with confidence in the present day, so that we can actually care more about this world, not less. Think about how much the future dictates the decisions you make. Think about what you're worried about right now. You're worried about things in the future. Probably. Um, <clears throat> anticipation, right? If you are, if vacation is coming, you're having a really hard time concentrating right now. Because vacation. We make financial decisions, retirement decisions, health decisions. Ugh. My doctor, I don't like him right now. I think I've told you, my coping mechanisms, mechanisms were not great. Okay? Let's just get that out of the way. This is vulnerability because I know you're not going to talk back to me, right? That's manipulative vulnerability. Um, relationship decisions. Uh, if you believe that this life is all we have, you're going to look at life differently. If you view, though, that the meek and the surrendered will one day inherit the earth, you will value things differently. Utilitarian principles, which is what we most operate on in our world today. And there's some variations of it, but this is kind of the, the umbrella. Rely on what is good for the most amount of people. Uh, this can also be called consequentialism. The results are what dictates what's good or bad. Um, and what makes the most people happy. And this is fickle. I don't know if you've noticed that, but to make a decision based on what makes the most people happy is fickle. Because we are fickle. And it's supposed to focus on, utilitarian is supposed to take into effect all people, other people. Uh, we often have a way of kind of editing ourselves into that view. So all people means me and people that I agree with and we need to do the most good for that group. That's what utilitarianism would argue on. And that becomes 
kind of hard because we always include ourselves in that category. Fear of the future. Religious people manipulate the mess out of fear of the future. Right? We've had end-of-the-world theories since the beginning of the world. And we will manipulate people. Fear tactics. Fear tactics, uh, these, uh, these can also be used in a utilitarian sense for self-indulgence or self-righteousness. For Jesus' followers, however, the future is certain. Resurrection is certain. It is a comfort. And so Paul would say, Paul considered the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Jesus' ethics operated under the certainty of a future kingdom, that he would be raised to the de- from the dead. So, as Jeremy talked about earlier, he didn't, he, didn't, he didn't take over the world like normal people would take over the world. He gave of his life as a ransom for many. Because death was not the end. Resurrection was the end. And he endured pain and suffering and abandonment and betrayal and mockery and rejection because he was the Messiah, the Savior, and he was certain that this was not it. There was a full kingdom to come. And so his life was not about How can I get personal happiness? His hope was built in a future kingdom. And I'm not talking like masochistic stuff, like how can we suffer? But this ought to give us the ability to suffer well. So the ethics of Jesus flowed from the revealed word of God and his law, and from, uh, which is above, and from the future, the prophets from beyond. Still with me? All right. Hmm. The ethics of Jesus also flow from below. We'll call this wisdom. Jesus operated within a culture, within a people, within a time. He operated with wisdom. He had to navigate the world around him. Uh, He was was Jewish. Jewish had Roman oppressors. Like, he had to walk on the earth and operate with wisdom. McKnight suggests that uh, wisdom is how we live in God's world in God's way. I think wisdom is critical for ethical understanding, like when to operate on, like, when do we leave some of the deontological stuff behind, right? That takes wisdom. When do we break the code? You lie about hiding people in your house. That's wisdom. But wisdom rarely gets much legroom in ethical theories. So wisdom is basically how do we trust God, how do we be a follower of Jesus, and walk in our culture, and not just Everything is black and white. Everything is this. Or, everything is self-revolved. How do we work in and out of stories and cultures uh, and live out God's way? Um, I think this is essential, especially when we consider the posture with which we hold our convictions and our hope. Um, this, this was, I think it was last year, or a couple years ago, whenever the Twitter and blog mobs came after Tim Keller. Uh, and you may be totally oblivious to this, and that's fine. Tim Keller is a, is a retired pastor uh, from Manhattan. I quote him a lot, uh, and I have a tremendous amount of respect for him. I don't, it doesn't mean I agree with him on everything, but I have a tremendous amount of respect for him. And bloggers were coming after him uh, because they suggested that he was 
too winsome. That was the actual critique, is you're too winsome. And this is what they meant by that. Winsome, clever, wise, may have been okay when Christianity was looked at either neutral or somewhat favorably. But now, it's a war, it's all out, black and white, us versus them, get down to tax, we get our people in place, and we charge the hill. Uh, we fight fire with fire. Just like Jesus told us. <sighs> Here's what's interesting. Most of those critiques, most of those bloggers came from Midwest-type towns. Tim Keller has been doing incredibly effective ministry in Manhattan. Manhattan has never looked at Christianity neutrally, in, in a neutral sense or favorably. Never. By and large. Um, Keller has wisdom. And he responded with grace and generosity. Some may suggest the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, and tried to gain understanding of the critics. And then somebody asked him, why do you do that? Why do you even engage with people when you know they have no intention of understanding you? And you know what he said? This was his response. Because I genuinely want people to know and love and trust Jesus. How good and kind and loving he is. I want the hardened to know his kindness and love. That's not me. I would pray imprecatory psalms down on my enemies. Wisdom acknowledges, I think, the posture we take, the ways we interact with each other in the world and how we, both, how we best engage and apply truths of Scripture. Jesus treated different people differently. And that said, our current world, we are worshipers of the spirit of the, our, of the age. We give ourselves absolutely fully, doesn't matter which side you're on, we give ourselves absolutely fully to the latest views of what we see, what we hear, doesn't even matter if it's true or not. Um, and, and like we are absolutely passionate about this thing this week and next week we're going to be absolutely passionate about something else. If wisdom... If ethics from below is not tethered to ethics from above and beyond, we're going to be chasing our tails like a crazy dog. We're going to overreact all the time, being tossed to and fro by one thing or another. So we have ethics from above, uh, what God revealed. We have ethics from beyond, the prophets. And we have ex uh, ethics from below, um, which is wisdom. We have the law. We have the prophets we have wisdom literature of the ways that God has made himself known and how we are to operate in this world. And this is all glorious and yet incomplete without the person of Jesus who embodies all of this. And McKnight calls this messianic, ecclesial, and pneumatic. Let me explain that. I get this is a lot. And I'm glad most of you are still here. 
I guess if you're here, you're still here. <clears throat> Jesus is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of this whole Old Testament thing. Paul never considered himself not Jewish. Paul saw Jesus as the completion of that project and gave himself fully to it. Jesus is the one that fulfills all things. He is the law, the prophets, and wisdom embodied as a human. He is God. And he, he calls this ethic to be carried out in a community, a kingdom-minded community of the church, the ideal church, the people of Jesus, that is powered by the work of the Holy Spirit, experiencing the presence of God by the power of the Holy Spirit at work within the people. If we take these and separate them out and just do one, we miss it. If we say, nope, we just need the law, it's incomplete. Well, we just need the prophets, it's incomplete. We just need wisdom. And if we take the person of Jesus and fit him into the category we want him in, we are missing the point. He is all of these things embodied as the hope of Israel and the hope of the world. If you were here, do you remember when we were in Deuteronomy and we talked about the law? And we said how the law is not just a list of rules to follow. That's not, that wasn't the intent of the law. The intent of the law was to create and shape a people that reflected their creator, their God. It wasn't just do these things, don't do these things. That's always been the point of the law. Jesus is everything that that law was meant to produce. He embodies it perfectly. He is it. So that this is so much more than just going to heaven when we die. It's more than just being good religious people. It's more than just, is this sin or is this not sin? Is this right or is this wrong? It's more than just that. It's about becoming the people of Jesus, the people that by God's grace, we, communally, we were designed to become. N.T. Wright puts it this way. The Sermon on the Mount isn't just about how to, believe, uh, how to behave. It's about discovering the living God in the loving and dying Jesus and learning to reflect that love ourselves into the world that, so badly, uh, that needs it so badly. Stanley Hauerwas put it this way. The Sermon on the Mount, therefore, it's not a list of requirements, but rather a description of the life of a people gathered by Jesus and around Jesus. The ethic of a people of Jesus is ultimately Jesus. All that he is, all that he embodies. So how do we live? We brass tacks. How do we live then? Whew. Ultimately, like one step at a time, we dwell, we follow, we listen, we one another one another, we encourage, we rebuke, we remind, we confess, we forgive, 
We say hard things in loving ways to hardened hearts, and we say soft things to softened hearts. We resist, we serve, we love, we mess up, we experience communal grace and restoration. And we become. We become a kingdom people with Jesus as king. I, I know we're late. I, I would, this is like where I, I wish we had like a built-in Q&A time. Um, all right. I hope and pray this made sense. This is a whole lot to take in. And um, I hope some of it hits. Uh, this week, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take these thoughts. I'll, we'll, we'll put a, I'll put a general breakdown. The, the outline that we had up here, we'll put it in the app. Um, so you'll have a general breakdown. And, and there will be some other ways that you can uh, think through these things. Um, I want you to take these thoughts of the ethics of Jesus, all that he embodies, not to the exclusion, but the inclusion of all of Scripture, and I want you to bring them to bear. Just as you walk along the way, I want you to bring them to bear on your positions, on your decisions, your raising of children, your savings goals, your education, your fear about the stock market, your political leanings, your interactions with your neighbor, interactions with your spouse, your interactions with your parents, that guy that cuts you off, the slow cars in front of you, the fast cars behind you. Bring these to bear. The ethics of Jesus are not a list of like, okay, in this situation, do this. In this situation, do this. It is a trust and a following and knowing and it's walking in all of those nuances and listen we want do this don't do this that's what we crave but that's not what jesus calls us to how does and and then bring those to bear and then talk about it with each other talk about it with a friend with your gc confess these things um, how does the spirit-formed community of the Messiah, forged from God's revelation above, with the hope of the promises of the beyond, walking in the wisdom of the below, how does that impact how we think and act and commune and trust by the power of the Holy Spirit in our world right now? All right? Let's pray. And take a deep breath. Jesus, you are more profound and yet more simple than all the philosophers combined. You have built a kingdom. It's, it's easy to destruct kingdoms. It is. What's hard is to build a kingdom that actually lasts. And you've done that, and it has been abused, manipulated, it has been taken every which way, and yet you still uphold your people, and you will make all things new, and you still redeem, and you still provide hope and comfort.
So Jesus, I pray that we would think better and, and not that this would be just monumentally confusing, but that it would be simple and hopeful that when we follow you, that, that it really is that simple. And yet, we can plumb the depths of what that means and we'll never get to the bottom. I pray that you make yourself known. Holy Spirit, give comfort to those who are hurting. Give peace to those who are in turmoil. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now victoriously seated at the right hand of the Father. May we walk in that hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.